Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Susan Harris-Howell. Susan received her Doctor of Education from the University of Louisville, and she is Professor of Psychology at Campbellsville University, where she teaches on gender studies and integrating faith and psychology. She frequently writes and speaks for Christians for Biblical Equality and has written numerous articles and spoken at conferences about the importance of following our own gifts and calling. She recently released a book with InterVarsity Press titled Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call. Welcome, Susan. I'm so glad that you're joining us on Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I love your book. Wow. It just, there's so many great things in it, and I'm excited to dive in into that. But before we do, maybe just a little bit of your history. You're a psychologist. You're at Campbellsville University in Kentucky, where I visited a couple years ago, actually. Right. And it's such a gorgeous place. You're married to a pastor, Dwayne. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that because his own educational journey and your educational journey kind of map out. And you talk a little bit about that in your book. So I'd love to to have you, before we dive into the book, kind of talk a little bit about your own journey that has led you to writing this book. Okay. Well, I was raised, first of all, in a Christian home. My parents were in churches. We were in churches that were rather narrow in their view of women. But one thing that helped me so much to broaden my horizons is that my parents always were emphatic about the need for every person to study scripture for themselves and to not take someone else's word for even their own words for the way things work. And so even though I was raised to be more or less complementarian, when I got to college and I met my husband, who is my husband now, Dwayne, he actually was much more open to non-traditional gender roles than I was. And he is the one who helped me to see that women could do so much more than what I had always believed. And so he helped me a whole lot in that. I joke with him that he had it made. He had someone who thought she was supposed to let him make the decisions. And he's kind of created this monster now. But but he did help me a lot with that. And so when we met, we were pursuing, you know, our goals. He was called to ministry. And I didn't frame my goals as a calling per se at that time. I talked about my goals, my ambitions, my love for psychology, but I didn't yet see it as a call per se. But nonetheless, we knew from the start that we would both be pursuing our call. And as you said, I do relay in the book some about that, which I think we'll refer to later. But that was really like the foundation for us was meeting, each having our own goals, but framing those goals differently. We saw his as a calling and mine as a career goal, so to speak. Yes, yes. And 
And that's a significant difference, isn't it? I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of what you tease out in the yes. book. But can you just talk a little bit about what would what are the entailments of seeing things that way? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it led to initially led to my seeing his career as being the most important. Because when someone says they're called to serve God and you're saying that you want to be a psychologist, you know, in private practice or researching or teaching or whatever, there's a hierarchy there in terms of what's more important. And that's the way I guess I saw it to begin with. I think I saw it to begin with as his being more important. And I know we were certainly hearing from family members and friends that his job would take priority, that I would need to wait and see what he was going to do. I can't say that I ever completely bought into that, but that was certainly the way it was presented to us. And it wasn't until later when I started realizing, well, if God is calling both of us to do this, who says that his call is a call and mine is a I want to be a psychologist. And it was later that I started realizing that if it's a call, it doesn't have to take place in a church. It could take place anywhere. Yeah, but that's right. That's right. And I think you also bring out in the book, we're going to jump into it now, but you bring out in the book how there are expectations on women in terms of the home, being married and having children and taking care of the home, which is seen as much more superior to having any kind of calling that would involve time outside of those activities. And that same expectation is not put on men. So we'll Mm -hmm. definitely unpack that. But let's dive in at the beginning. I tend to, you know, sometimes (laughs) just jump in the middle. But wait, we'll start at the beginning here. Although I will read something from the epilogue that sets it Uh all off. I, I love your question that you cite from a student mm-hmm. teach students teach us so much yes, yes they do they do yes you mentioned this student's question if god calls women to pastor why don't more churches have women leaders and you said that it was part of what launched you or kept you going in this study and in your book you talk about gendered socialization you you kind of analyze that. Can you just talk in about what, broadly speaking, this category is of gender socialization that you're addressing in the book? Right. Well, gender socialization would be anything that channels us one way or another toward certain activities, goals, careers, based purely on the fact that we're a boy, girl, man, or a woman. And while there are all sorts of overt things that are said to us and that we experience throughout our lives that want to put us into gendered boxes. Like, for instance, someone might actually say to a woman, you can't be a preacher because you're a woman. Or they might say to a man, you're not going to be as good of a cook, or you shouldn't stay in the church nursery because you're a man. My book doesn't deal with that so much because something that's that overt, we typically recognize it for what it is, And then we react to it, usually at that moment or shortly thereafter. 
But what my book deals with are all of the over, what, I mean, I'm sorry, more subtle ways that those messages are given to us along the way. Like, for instance, hearing in the language of the hymns that we sing at church about the man of God or the brotherhood of mankind or God <clears throat> solely presented to us as being male or hearing prayers that as we're calling a pastor that we will find the man of God, things like that. And so very often those are subtle. And whenever I bring that up with my classes or at conferences, what people consistently tell me is that they never had thought about it. That whenever the Bible even talks about sons of God instead of children of God, or our forefathers instead of our ancestors, that they just don't pay attention to that. They just go along. And sometimes people will even say, oh, I don't let that affect me. But I believe that it does affect us. I don't think that we can get out of that. So my book looks at the ways our language, the toys we're given as children, the books that are read to us, the TV and movies that we are encouraged or discouraged from watching, even the games that we play, how all of that has this consistent, persistent, subtle way of channeling us. And I make the case for the fact that is really more dangerous because we don't recognize it. And I've had people who've read my book who said, you know, that happened 20 years ago. And until I read in the book about this, it never occurred to me that was socialization. That was sexism. That was channeling me in this direction or that. So I think it's more dangerous because it goes unnoticed. Well, as you were, as I was reading through the book and now you just talking, an example comes to my mind of my own life. When I met my future husband and we got to know each other's family, I learned that his dad did grocery shopping. Oh. Now, I, I you know, like I think I'm in high school, if not college at this point. <laughs> and I thought, wow, your dad goes to the grocery store, you know, right. but it, uh, you know, that I didn't I know, know dads did that. And I told my mom this story later. She said, oh my word, I don't think your father, I, I you know, I, I can't remember time when he went into a grocery store. Right. But I, it's not that, I mean, that's my dad. Like, that's Scott, right? You know, right. it has nothing to do with men or yes. with fathers. Yes. But, but that's how, as a kid, I just kind of absorbed that without thinking about it. Now, yeah. you go through in your book, and one of the things I love about it is the way it's organized. You look at the early, mm -hmm. just the toddler years. Mm -hmm. And then when the kids are a little bit older, and then even like in high school, and then adulthood. If we focus right now on these early years, and especially the parenting there, how do you see this gender essentialization beginning? What would be some of the characteristics or what, we, what you notice in your work that comes right. out? You mean as far as what we do that will very often channel? Yeah, right. Um, that's right. And you right. cite a lot of studies, which is another thing I appreciate about this yeah. book. There's a lot of evidence that you cite in this. Right. Well, one of the things that I mentioned just from the get go, whenever we know it's a boy or it's a girl, 
we start in buying different color items. We start in buying different kinds of toys. There's even research that depending on whether it's a boy or a girl, your voice will even sometimes change when you talk to the child. And so we do this from the very beginning so that by the time that child is even a few days old, people have expectations about that child and what that child is going to gravitate toward a football as opposed to a dish set or a doll as opposed to a truck or a car. And, you know, from the very first moment that we know it's a girl or a boy, those toys. And basically what research tells us is that the toys girls are typically given channel them toward the home, inside the home, child care, housework, cooking, grocery shopping, all of those types of things. And the toys that we give little boys very often focus them outside of the home. Like, for instance, cars and trucks or sports equipment that they're consistently be to being told to take that out of the house. And so they are very often, their focus is pulled outside of the home. And for girls, it's pulled inside the home. I was real fortunate growing up that my dad was very active and my mom to a certain extent as well. So we did a lot of like skiing, horseback riding and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so <laughs> when I'm much better at cleaning out and, <laughs> and spreading, pulling the manure spreader around the fields right. than I am cleaning a toilet. But I realized that yeah, I realized that was not the typical way of raising Kit, girls at uh -huh. least, but but I'm grateful for that because yeah. some, especially, and we're learning more and more that as kids use their bodies, there's tremendous confidence that grows in that. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And if you think about even if you're playing outside, whether it's sports equipment or just running around, you know, playing tag, you're taking up space. And if you are inside with the dolls sitting around a table and the dishes, you're not taking up space. And so very often, without even realizing it, I make the point too that no one is intentional. I have no doubt. No one is saying, let's have a child so that we can channel it in ways that will be ineffective. We don't do that. We just, at least I hope we don't. No, um, I agree. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, your, and the tone in your book, I should add, is absolutely one of polite concern. There's no oh, accusations. Good. There's not a harsh note yes. in it anywhere. I'm no. so glad to hear that because that is always my goal. And I always tell my students whenever they take a gender studies class with me is I tell them, we are not going to be about blaming women or men, that this is a societal issue. It's not something men are doing to women. And I consistently hear guys say at the end of the semester, I didn't know you said that. I was hoping. And then they'll say, you did that. You know, I mean, you didn't blame us for the world's problems. But yeah, I think that very often those very subtle messages drive home in a point that children pick up on sooner rather than later that these activities are for me and those activities are not for me. Well, and then you mention also this phrase, second shift. Mm -hmm. So when the young kids see what their dads are doing and what their moms are doing, 
and you talk about the second shift that a lot of moms do. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Right. The second shift is what we know is that most often in most homes, even when the man and woman work equal numbers of hours during the day, women still do the lion's share of the child care, cooking, cleaning, grocery shopping, chauffeur, helping children with homework and all of that, which is a workload in itself. And very often what I will hear <clears throat> is that, oh no, it's different now. That's the way it was back maybe in the 40s and the 50s, but not now. But research shows that even though, you know, it used to be men were working and women were in, working in the home, but not out. Even though women are now working out of the home very often as many hours as men, the housework distribution, childcare, grocery shopping, cooking is still very, there's such a discrepancy. And so what research shows is that men are doing more now than men of past generations did. And so men very often know they're doing a whole lot more than they ever saw their dad do which makes them feel and makes their wives very often feel that, well, he's doing his part. And okay, I mean, as far as that goes, that's wonderful. But research shows that she's still doing the lion's share of the work while she's also doing the same number of hours of work outside the home. So there's still that discrepancy. One research piece that I found a few years ago, and I wish I could remember who it was to get credit where it's due. But I had read where they looked at the autonomic nervous system activity of men and women. And they found that during the workday, you know, we're on high alert. And that men's autonomic nervous system activity decreases somewhere around five or six o'clock in the afternoon. Women's decreases at around 10 o'clock in the evening. Wow. So there's physiological evidence for the fact of what we all know intuitively is that when a woman comes home at the end of the day, she has another shift. And it's very often just assumed, well, that's because she's the woman. That it's more natural. And you it bring is. that out. And we right. kind of reinforce that. I know... <laughs> We have a son and a daughter. We had a son first. My husband changed diapers, all that stuff. Then we uh -huh. got a daughter. And the first couple of times he was changing diapers, he said, man, I just don't know about this plumbing. <laughs> right. And, you know, right. and he's just right. a little nervous, you know, yeah. about all this. I think, well, it's not that. Yeah. They still fill up the diaper kind of the same <laughs> way. Right. Yeah. But I think you make the good point that, you know, if there's a little bit of nervousness, the wife just picks it up. Sure. So then the husband doesn't have to do it. So then, right. th but that creates a cycle. And I, it does. yeah, I, now I will say, and my husband listens to all of these, so he will be the first to affirm what I'm saying. I'm not putting him down, but sure. we do have regulations on what kind of my clothing he puts in the washer because at <laughs> right. times it can right. then come out looking like a Barbie doll size. Right, right. So there are certain, I think, and that may not be just <clears throat> maleness, but just sure. Jim being Jim. But anyway, right. <laughs> so sometimes personalities are such where the man loves to cook or clean or something like that, that it all kind of works out. But I think you make the really strong case that maybe women are either 
quick to step in or socialized maybe to step mm-hmm. in right. and fix things. And that really, in the end of the day, doesn't help, does it? <clears throat> it doesn't help at all because we get better at what we do. And so if the woman is the one who consistently picks up the child when he cries, or if the man is the one who disciplines whenever they need that, then mom gets better at comforting and he gets better at being the bad guy. And we get rather stuck. I remember one time when our son was real little, he fell and it wasn't anything dangerous. He's crying and everything. And my husband was right there and he picked him up. And I just went over and got ready to take him out of my husband's hands. And my husband stopped me. He said, no, he said, he needs to know that I can take care of him and comfort him. And he was 100% right. And I knew he was right, but it was hard not to do. And I know that no matter how egalitarian I believe myself to be, I was still raised in the 1960s in a complementarian community. And I still had that urge to rush in to comfort. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I was really glad that my husband knew that he had to be a parent that our children saw as comforter, not just disciplinarian. Yeah, that's really good. If I switch just a little bit as the kids get older, you spent a lot of time also talking about education and what kids are hearing in the school that one, one note that really struck me was you cite a study where it says we tend to praise girls for their hard work in math and we praise boys for their talent. In- mm-hmm. Oh, I thought that was so interesting. Can you tell us what's going on here a little bit? Yes, that was one of the most fascinating studies for me, too. Evidently, what they found is that a parent has a daughter and a son. They both do well. Typically, if they don't both do well in a task we think of as masculine, like for instance, they've just done really well on a math exam or a science experiment, we're more likely to tell the boys, you're really smart. You've got talent. You're gifted in this area. And with girls, we're more likely to say, you really did work hard for that. I'm proud of you for your effort. And I always tell my students that those are both compliments. There's nothing wrong. I'm glad if people say, oh, well, you're a talented writer. I liked your book. Or I can see you put in a lot of effort. Both are compliments and I'll take either. Okay. But it does communicate something different to the boy. It communicates that your talent, the reason you did well is because of something that is inherent within yourself. It's who you are. For a girl, if we say it was your effort, then her success was not because of who she is, but rather what she did in this one situation. And we all know that we might do really well on something that took a lot of effort today, but tomorrow we might not have the time to devote to it. And so it does communicate to the boy your success is going to be repeated over and over again. And it communicates to the girl that you did well this time. The jury's still out on what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and so on. And I think that has some really strong 
that communicates something to little girls and boys that we don't necessarily need to be communicating. Right, right. In my, just my experience, you know, one person, but teaching over two decades, I find that my female students, and this is in the college and seminary Mm -hmm. world, have a much higher bar that they give themselves than my male students. And they can be equally smart. Like if I read their papers and I don't know who turned them in, I'm not going to be able to say this is a guy who wrote and this is a gal who wrote, right? right? That's not going to be evident. But when I talk with the students, there's a sense that I get from the female students that unless they can do an A-plus job, they're nervous about doing it in a way that I don't see the men, even though they the men also want to do well. Mm-hmm. Do you sure. think that's some of what's going on here as we educate girls I from think the so. you know, early and years? I think so. And there has been some research recently that shows that men will apply for a job. And I don't know what the percentage is, but if they meet a certain percentage of the qualifications that are listed, you know, in the app, typically women are hesitant to apply unless they meet all of the qualifications for the job or all of the things that are in the advertisement that they say they want. And what is happening then Like you say, we are holding ourselves to these standards. And if a man isn't holding himself to the same standard, he's going to apply for more of those jobs and therefore get more of those jobs. This would also account, I think, for why an employer might say, we really wanted to consider a woman for this job, but we didn't have very many applicants. And then I think that feeds back into this idea that oh, well, women just aren't suited for these jobs. So all of this builds, it's like this snowball that builds and nobody is realizing that what's behind it are the subtle socialization cues that we're receiving. Oh, absolutely. I love this line you talk about. An identity is a reservoir from which we draw to form and maintain close, meaningful relationships. Yeah, and then you talk about identity. Can you just uh, unpack that a little bit mm-hmm. for us? Uh, yeah. I love that. Identity is a reservoir from which we draw. Yes. I'm glad you like that. You know, I'm, I like that phrase too. <laughs> so <laughs> to whenever me, yeah. people say that, and then I think, oh, well, that's good. Because sometimes when you write something, you don't know if it means something to other people. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever the students come in my office and they start talking about what their plans are and what they want, very often what I see are these young college women who what they're going to be doing in their career is enmeshed in this identity that they have that they're also going to need to be a good wife and a good mother. That's just, it's like their identity is wrapped up in that. And it's not at all unusual for me to several years down the road to, you know, run into one of these women somewhere. They come by my office, they're in town, we meet for coffee. And, you know, what are you doing these days? And, well, they decided to postpone graduate school because they're focusing on helping their husband get his business off the ground or for him to go to grad school or 
moving wherever he is. And very often they will say that as if they're the only woman who's ever done that. They don't realize that this isn't just something that Mary is doing for John, that this is something that for generation after generation, there's a pattern of women doing this for men. And they don't seem to realize that. And so a lot of times they'll say, well, it's not because I'm a woman. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit debatable whether it is. And I try not to be tedious <laughs> about it with them. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. You know, as you, this is a nice segue into your own story, because you talk about how you and your husband were figuring out graduate education mm -hmm. together. And you talk about it as a pretty significant moment for you in mm -hmm. your marriage. Yes, it was. Yeah. Talk a little bit about just sort of how that unfolded for right. you. Well, one of the things, like you said, that I relay in the book, it, it was a very pivotal moment for me. I had to work myself up to saying to my husband that, we had spent several years, three years, while he worked on his MDiv seminary and had put off, and I was fine with putting off whatever the next step was, um, but I felt like we needed to spend some time letting me get my credentialing so that we could, I could do what I planned to do. I think what made it so difficult for me, in addition to you know having been socialized, is that most of my friends were putting on hold what they were doing. They were saying, we're going to have to wait and see what our husbands do before we can decide what we're going to do. We're going to have to wait and see. I heard that from several of them at the time and from extended family too. And that just didn't sit well with me. I didn't know why. There, I have to admit, there was a part of me that bought into it to some degree. So that's why I think it was difficult, but I just knew that I couldn't just let that go. So I approached my husband with it and I said, we've spent several years preparing for yours before we move on to another area that may or may not have a school with a degree that they offer that's in my area. We need to spend some time for me to get my degree <laughs> He was so casual. Well, of course we'll do that. He And I was really taken aback that he really did put my career and calling on the same level as his. And not too long after that, we were out with some friends. And the man asked my husband, what will you be doing when you graduated, May? And the first thing my husband said is, I'm going to wait and Susan's going to get her degree. She's waited for me all these years. And so I'm going to do that. I was just speechless, really. One of the things that, that I think relates here, and I report in the book, is that even though words of affirmation are important for men and women alike, women tend to be more encouraged than men are when their ideas, their plans are affirmed by someone else. And rightly or wrongly, I know that's what was going on for me, was that I had this intuitive sense that I needed to do this and I needed to say it and just put it out there. 
but it was his affirmation that sealed the deal for me that yes, this was right. Now, you could write a whole other book on should I have let his affirmation be the thing? And of course, I don't believe I should have. There's a whole book there, I'm sure. But like it or not, that was evidently what I needed. And I'm very thankful that I have a husband who, without even thinking twice, said, well, sure, of course he'll do that. But I think about all the women who venture into saying that to a spouse or a, a partner, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and it's not met with that affirmation. It would be easy for them to just say, oh, well, never mind. I wasn't thinking. And then just not pursue. And that's very sad. Susan, as you were sharing your story with us, I couldn't help but think of similarities to my own. I can think back to times in my marriage where we said things like, well, I'm just supporting you during this season, or I'm going to follow you to this place during this season. And I guess it just makes me think of how important the words that we use are and how we describe it. And even in this most recent year, we moved halfway across the country and my husband followed me for a job that I took for the first time in our marriage, not because he wasn't willing to, but it was just the first time Mm. that's how it happened. And we had, I, we actually had conversations about how do we talk about this with our friends, particularly our complementarian friends of how do we present that this is the decision that he is making and he doesn't know what job he's going to take when we get there. Right. That was a big deal. And so I just, as a woman, it almost feels like perceived conflict. Like I'm going to have to explain to everyone why my husband has made this decision. So Mm -hmm. do you have any words of encouragement maybe for women who find themselves in that sort of season where they need to have the the conversations you're talking about, maybe with their husband or even with their family or friends? Right. They're just not really sure how to begin that conversation. Yeah. You know, I think obviously it's so important to have that conversation with the partner. And I think that it's wonderful that you've done that. And your husband, I mean, that you all are on the same page there. That's wonderful. What you said about explaining it to complementarian, like friends and family. One thing that I have found that has helped me, and I don't know if it's helped them or not, but it's helped me is when we present this, we present it as something that we are excited to do, that we are enthused about, and sometimes not even tiptoeing into an explanation because unless, I mean, you know, if they want you to explain and you want to explain, feel free to explain, of course, but sometimes we would just approach it as this is what we're doing, and we wouldn't feel compelled to explain it because then it would maybe communicate to them that it needed to be explained. And Mm -hmm. so I think people at first anyway, just started like, oh, well, this is Susan and Dwayne, you know how they are, you know, (laughs) they just (laughs) sort of accepted it. But what I also found is that some of my complimentarian friends would later say something like, I think it's wonderful that you did that. Or I wouldn't have had the nerve to do it, but I can see why you did. And I found that some of my complimentarian friends and family members were cheering me on, even though I thought initially that they might 
object. So I guess I'm saying don't feel the need to explain yourself as much and don't sell them short on a part of them deep inside might be really admiring. That's great. So encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and keeping in that line of thought with communication, you talk about how women are socialized to be nice and men to be decisive. And I have in different ways in my role in seminary leadership have had people say things you know, like, you know, Lynn, you're decisive in a sense, like, and I, they mean it very politely, but also as a bit of a surprise because you're a woman and mm-hmm. yet you're, you know, yes. being decisive and being direct and all of that. But you talk about how our language and communication styles reinforce women's niceness. And that is true. I also have at times talked in the passive voice to, because there was an expectation that there should be a softness connected with my leadership that would not be an expectation for a male colleague. Mm -hmm. So how does though this language and communication maybe keep us from doing, living into fully our calling, especially if our calling means having leadership responsibilities? Yes, there's a lot out there on language and basically in a nutshell, men communicate directly with concise, statements of intent that communicates to them that they have the right to feel and do whatever they're feeling or doing, and they have a right to communicate it. Women are more likely to hedge to what I'm doing now, try our best to pull together things that maybe make us sound like we're sure And when we do that, we sound like, first of all, that we aren't sure. And secondly, that we're not sure we have the right to even communicate it. And if you think about that, if you're interviewing two people for a job and one is decisive and has convinced you that they've thought it through and that this job is what they want, and the other person is communicating that they're still debating it, they're not quite sure that this is what they want you're much more likely to hire the one who is sure. And I believe as important as that, in the home, if the husband is saying, this job is everything I've ever wanted, I want to take it. And the wife is saying, that job might be good for me. How would you feel about my working more hours? His goals are going to be much clearly, more clearly communicated It's funny that I stumbled on those words clearly communicated. That's a little bit ironic, isn't it? So I think I've just made my point. So his goals are going to be communicated more clearly and understood by his spouse. Her goals are going to be less clearly communicated and understood less by her spouse. So who do you think they're going to move for? It's going to be for his job. So I think it has some pretty important, significant repercussions, both for when they apply for jobs and present themselves to a potential employer and the way they understand their goals as a family when they're talking in the privacy of their own home. So it's going to affect both internally and externally. 
Well, I really want to encourage all of our listeners to get your book. It this It's just fantastic. But as we close, to just invite you to give, I mean, I want them to read the book. So I don't want you to give it all away. You know, <laughs> listeners, please go get Buried Talents, you know, by Susan Harris Howell. Yeah. But if you could leave us with maybe just two or three kind of concrete next steps that mm -hmm. as women are listening to this and saying, oh, I love it. What can I do? Can you give us two or three steps sure. before they go out and get the book? Yeah. Sure. One thing that I suggest is pay attention to the language you use around children. When you are at church and you notice a little girl or a little, don't be so quick to compliment how she is wearing her hair. And then ask him how he's doing in algebra. You might want to change that around a little bit. Compliment her on the book she's reading or her first semester in college. You might also want to be careful about the gifts that you give your children, nieces and nephews and so on. If you notice, or even if you haven't noticed, that she is very interested in something that typically is done for by boys. Um, take the time to find out what she's interested in before you assume that a doll is the best gift for her or that a football is the best gift for him. And something else I mentioned that I think is important is take a look at the way things are done within your community, for instance, within your churches, within the school system. Find out ways that you can plug in to broaden the awareness. I talk some in the book about checking in with your school to see if they have a career day, for instance. And if you are a woman doing something that's traditionally thought of as a male thing, or if you're a man and you have an occupation that people normally think of as being for a woman, volunteer to go and talk about what you do and what you like about it and how it is that you got where you are, what motivated you, what courses did you need to take, so that children can see. You might be the first person that lets that girl or boy know that what they want to do is something they could actually do. So I provide a lot of, I think, very practical steps in the book where people can take something and then go out and use it at home, at church, at school. Oh, uh, well... Yes, you got, you do. There, there is a lot of practical next steps built into the book that, yeah, and it's beautifully written. Susan, thank you so much for spending a morning with us here on Alabaster Jar. I don't know when our listeners are going to pick it up, but I've spent a delightful morning conversation with you. And uh, yeah, I thank encourage you. everyone to get, you're welcome. I encourage everyone to get Buried Talents. It's fantastic. And can I tell also, that I would love for people to check out my website at SusanHarrisHowell.com, and you can connect with me on all of my socials there. And I would absolutely love to hear from anyone who's read the book, and I would just enjoy hearing from anyone who has. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Susan Harris Howell, check the episode description for links to her website and her new book, Buried Talents. We upload new episodes every week, so subscribe, share, and join us back next Tuesday for another insightful conversation.